So we're zoning in here, and this is, I think, going to be a great episode on the impacts of the Oakland County child killer, that it, the impact that it had in the community for years and years and years to come, and why a cold case that's so old matters so much even today. But I've got some good news to share in terms of the justice served and the chronology of the cases that we've been discussing. While not related to the Oakland County child killings, the murders of Sheila Schrock and Cynthia Kadju were very tragic and, and started to set the community off in terms of the panic that would eventually, you know, start and culminate with the murder of Tim King there. So actually, in December of 1978, Sheila's killer is actually sentenced. So in an article from the Lansing State Journal, December 5th, 1978, I'll just paraphrase the article here, but this guy... Um, he basically, they catch up with this guy, Oliver R. Andrews of North Carolina, and they catch up with him and they arrest him for a robbery sort of thing. It's not even in Michigan, I don't believe, that they find him. So he's just wanted on some robberies and stuff, and he just admits to killing Sheila. I mean, they don't, they had no idea. I mean, Sheila's case was cold. They didn't think that they were really going to solve that case, and he just straight up admits to having done it all those years before. Now, of course, in his confession, he really tiptoes around and doesn't mention anything about brutally raping and sodomizing Sheila, but he does, uh admit to killing Sheila Schrock. So Sheila's murder is solved, case closed. Additionally, in 1979, Cynthia Kaju's killers, plural, are also sentenced. So they actually charge them before they find Sheila Schrock's killer. However, uh, they, go, they go to sentencing after. So two Jackson prison inmates were charged Thursday with the rape and murder of 16-year-old Cynthia Kaju. This is an article from the Detroit Free Press, February 10th, 1978. So uh, they do say here, you know, there's no, the alibis are solid here. Neither of these inmates nor uh, the killer of uh, Sheila Schrock was able to do the Oakland County child killings. So uh, basically they took Cynthia, three people, they only say two were charged, I think the other one is dead, uh, but two were charged and they took her to an unidentified Detroit motorcycle club where she was attacked and then her body was later dumped. So we, we have more clarity, we know what happened now to Cynthia Kaju. Her uh, killers are sentenced and they go away. Uh, good news, as good, as good as the news can get in those murders, but it doesn't get us any closer to finding the Oakland County child killer, and that leaves an indelible mark on the community. I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County, and it's time to get into just why this case matters today, because it does. It matters even 40-plus years later. This case left a massive mark on millions of people in the Detroit area and changed lives forever. So why exactly does this case matter so many years later when it's still unsolved and seemingly maybe, you know, not on the top of many people's minds? And to that, I'm going to bring up my own example first here. I'm 24 years old. I was born in 1997 in Wayne County, or I think I was born in Oakland County, actually, but lived in Wayne County really my entire life for quite some time. And even though these killings happened so much earlier, they affected my life, and they affected my upbringing, and it's not just because I'm a true crime fan. I remember for the longest time, I could only ride my bike down to the green garage, and that's because that's the last house you could see from the porch, so my parents could always keep an eye on me sort of thing. 
And look, I think it's good parenting at the time. You know, I, I'm a kid. I want to ride a little further, right? But, you know, hey, I understand the concern there because they grew up with the Oakland County child killer, you know, and maybe kept me on that bike keeping close to the house uh, longer than maybe their parents did pre-Oakland County child killing, right? So that's just a small example. I mean, just the smallest of things that perhaps the Oakland County child killer had an effect on. Uh, let's take a listen to my dad here just to get a, a good vibe of kind of how things changed a little bit. It wasn't unusual for a preteen um, kid or, or an early teenager kid to, to leave on their bikes and go and, um, and not come home. And I think whether it was the Oakland County child killer in Southeast Michigan that changed, but things have definitely changed. Um, and there's no way that I would have done that with my kids. As I talked about early on in the podcast, there's something lost there, something intangible. Nothing is stolen from you physically, but something is stolen from you. It's maybe your childhood innocence, or it's the way that you're gonna raise your kids. Something has changed fundamentally on a seismic level because of child murders that happened all those years ago. Let's take a listen to J. Ruben Appleman and what he says, I think he has a great way of saying it, this sort of grim inheritance that we have to live with with the Oakland County child killings. He's got a lot to say here, and I think he does a great job, so we're just going to let him go. Take it away, Jay. Yeah, man. Well, look, people don't think about uh, the lingering effects of violent crime in a community. What they think about is, okay, a violent crime occurred. Now, who can we put charges on and convict for that crime? And then they, and then that happens, and somebody gets convicted of a crime, not in this case, but in other violent crime cases, and somebody goes away to prison, and they think, success. Like, that's the goal. Somebody gets, somebody gets murdered, and the goal is to catch the murderer and put him away. Well, that doesn't end the after effects of this crime that, that when, when something horrible like this, you think about like spirituality and karma and things in your own life. When you do something, when you do something uh, nasty or whatever, you know, it doesn't end just cause you uh, uh, decided that was a bad idea. Like you live with the effects of that internally. You think about it, you're taking a shower, you go, man, I shouldn't have done that. You, you know, you're driving in the car to work a month later, man, I shouldn't have done that. You know, like you remember the things you do right? Because you're a spiritual, soulful person. Well, in this case, this, this thing that got done, it, it, or in any violent crime case, happens within a community, and that community walks around with the effects of that crime. So somebody goes to jail for it or whatever, that doesn't end the pain and suffering, obviously. That doesn't end the fact that like four children in this area got swiped off the streets out of nowhere, held in captivity, were 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 uh, sexually abused in captivity for you know one in one case somebody was held for 19 days that girl so like and then ends up just thrown out in the streets dead you don't just walk away from that as a community and go well at least they at least the police tried to do what they could do like that's not how it ends man you live you live for for uh in the immediate months in a state of complete shock and in the in the in the following years like adults, as you you hope that that shock gets watered down a little bit. But in the meantime, you're living your life and you're raising your kids. And of course, you're raising your kids a little differently now because six years ago, that violent crime that happened is, you know, changed the way 
you view the world. It shook, it shook you like it took you by the shoulders and shook you up, right? And so now you don't let your kids go down the street anymore. And now you change the way the you you lock your doors and windows at night. And now you, you know, maybe you're carrying a knife on the back of your belt or or a gun on your on your ankle now. And it changes everything because now you got when you take off your belt at night, you take off that knife. And when you sit in the car, maybe that gun is messing with your ankle. And like the point is. All this stuff affects everything. It's just like, you know, like touching, like touching a little piece of water and the ripple goes. And like this, this, you know, especially when the crimes go unsolved, this shit lingers. The people, there are some people who can rest better at night knowing that the crime got solved. But in this case, even those people don't get to rest at night. I think you can really get there. The case isn't really being actively worked on things are you're just trying to bury that pain you're trying to move on in the community can you do it i just i don't know you know you move on as best you can but how how well can you really do that i mean i think that jay just summed it up so perfectly there we're living with this grim inheritance and it just affects everything in the area it affects everything that you do even Nina, who was so young at the time, has things to say, things that affected her before her interest in the case. We talked a little earlier, but how did the Oakland County child killer and that situation, how did that affect your upbringing as someone who was young and grew up in the area where these events were taking place? How did that affect your upbringing? And then I know you mentioned um, at least you know, one of your kids is the same age as me or around the same age. How did that affect you know you how you raised them? So... I was very young when the when the killing started. Um, I was three in 1976, but my parents had separated and I was living with my grandparents in Berkeley. So I was very aware that, you know, things were stressful because, you know, my parents were separated. I was not living with them. Um, and then these killings started and my, my grandparents were very news focused. They read the paper, they watched the news. I think that might've been generational. So I was aware of it, and my grandmother was a hand ringer. So if I was going out in the yard to play, she had to be there to watch me, or I had to be in the backyard, which was fenced, because there's someone, you know, there's someone snatching children. We have to be careful. And then Christine Mahalik lived in Berkeley. She was literally taken from my neighborhood. She just lived a few streets away from me. And when I started kindergarten in 1977, there was a memorial to her in the school. Like oh, you'd walk into the yeah, so you'd walk into the building and there's this thing, and that was for Christine. Yeah, that's interesting. And, so it, it like kind of permeates down, even if you maybe weren't so conscious to what was going on. It's like kind of I don't know, kind of like that the blue hand in the window thing. Like, I don't know, something yes. bad can happen here. You have to consider it where you otherwise wouldn't have. Right. And where I lived in Berkeley was near 12 Mile and Coolidge. So I was just a few blocks from the 7-Eleven where she disappeared from Hartfield Lanes, where she went minutes before she was taken. So I, I saw those things all the time. And of course, there were whispers and then there were older kids in the neighborhood. And by older, I mean, like they were grade school age, you know, fourth, fifth grade. And they would talk about her, that they had a class with her or they knew her or they knew her sister. And there were rumors, which kids do, even younger kids. So it was that that summer of 77 was very memorable for a lot of reasons. We assumed that the killer was coming back in the fall. 
Right. Yep. Because without the benefit of hindsight, it's like, okay, what he's he's, come, he's coming back, right? So. Right. So it was just it was just sort of there, and then there was an incident when I was five. So this would have been probably the summer of '78. I still living with my grandparents. Told my grandmother that I was going to go one block over to see my friend Paul, and. I went to Paul's house and we played in his backyard and I decided I was tired. I was going to go home and I came around the corner and I could see my grandmother's house and there were two police cars at her house. So I started running because, you know, grandmas are old and I assumed in my little five-year-old head that my grandmother was injured or hurt or you know, something. Sure. And I ran and I, you know, ran in the door and I'm like, grandma. And both the cops looked at me and were like, oh, thank God. Because... She didn't hear me say that I was going to a friend's house. She called po the police and said, my grandchild is missing. Oh, and they assumed gotcha. that it was another incident. And it was just, they were very relieved to see me. I was very unhappy to see them. And I got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> right, sure. So right around this time that the Oakland County child killer is out there, everyone's grasping and hoping for ways to keep their community safe. How do we keep kids safe? How do we stay safer? And there's this concept at the time, it's a white hand in the window, and uh, now it's evolved, or at least when I was a kid, it was a blue hand in the window. And it was kind of this thing that you would put in your window, um, so a child would know that if they were in trouble, if someone was asking to get in their car, if something like that was going on, I'm going to look around immediately and check for maybe a house with that blue hand and go up to it. Um, so I think that that's a great idea in theory, and I, I like the idea, and look, I'm not really going to bash people who were uh, trying to do what they thought was right. You know, they were trying to do something. They were trying to be proactive. I mean, in a situation like that, perhaps I would do quite something similar. However, there's no real, at least as far as I found in the 70s, and I don't think there's one now, there's no real, like, background check that's necessary for this sort of thing. So... You know, you're going to hope that it's kind of this community unity sort of thing and that you've got these people around and people know their neighbors and that kind of stuff. But there's no, I don't think, real vetting of people who would put that up in their window. And to me, when I was a kid, I grew up in a safe community. I grew up in Livonia. And to me, when you're a kid, I don't know, you're, you're busy being a kid and you're busy having that sort of experience. And I remember vividly, for some reason, I remember us putting this like blue hand in the window and I was like well what is this what's this blue hand that we're putting in the window here and I remember you know getting explained it's it's in case like a kid's in trouble or something and then when you're a kid you're like okay well why why is a kid gonna be in trouble on my street you know why is why is that gonna happen here right it's these bad things they happen somewhere far off they happen far away but now I remember even as a kid you kind of have to except something bad could happen here and it kind of ruins that i don't know i don't know if it's again that childhood innocence but something there is lost and it was lost for me i asked my dad what he remembered of this sort of white blue hand sort of thing take a listen in i absolutely remember that and in fact that was one of the kind of the things that our our parents taught us was, you know, for instance, if I was out on the corner, no one was around uh, for the safety, doing my safety patrol before kids started coming and I saw a blue gremlin, I was told to go to one of the houses that had the hands in the window because those were people who offered to help. 
but I do right. remember that. Yeah. Does that, do you remember, did that make you feel like safer when you saw those or was it more of like a, like a trepidation feeling or do you remember like your sentiment around like that? Um, no, not really. I mean, uh, you kind of hope it never gets, it would get to that. And, um, right. I probably would have ran home. Uh, sure, like just, said. just knowing that it was there was maybe helped a little because you're still going yeah. to someone who's a kind of a stranger, although it's ideally in your neighborhood and maybe you know them, um, or something, but, uh, right. It's a, a kind of a community type of a symbol like a neighborhood watch yeah thing i hope you can see whether it's me talking so many years later or nina talking about even her when she was young or my dad or jay when they're a little bit older i hope you can see that this case still matters and seeing justice for this case still matters let's have jay just talk about it take us out maybe a little bit differently still talking about that grim inheritance concept and so this has gone on for 40 something years, 44 now, I guess it is. And, and um, we're going now on the third generation since these crimes. If you say, if you say, um, you know what, dude, we're going on the fourth generation. Check this out. Uh, my dad was probably 40 years old. You know, I'm just guessing at the time. Um, I, I'm not doing the math. I was seven. Um, that's two generations of people who really paid attention uh, I was because I grew up with people telling me you can't go down the block, bro, after these crimes. Um, so my dad, me, then I raised kids and now my kids are raising are about to be raising kids. That's four generations of people because I raised my kids a certain way because of this case. Now they're going to raise their kids a certain way because of this case. Right. Like, you know, man, you know, man, look, it's crazy. Like, I mean, like, like, you know, I'm 24 and and, you know, I was born in 1997. I just turned 24 and. Uh, I remember as a kid, you know, you had like the blue hand in the window thing and that just like invited yeah. in. I don't know. Cause like you think like bad things can't happen on my street or in my neighborhood, you know, it happens somewhere else sort of thing. And then even as a kid, you can understand yeah. like, Oh, why is this, why is this thing here? You know? And then, yeah, I remember I was always yeah. able to only ride my bike for, I mean, many years to the house with the green garage. Cause that was the last house you could see from the porch, you know? And, uh, Look, I mean, I talked to my dad about it and he doesn't think, you know, he's like, hey, I'm not going to I'm not going to give the killer that much credit. I don't think that, you know, it affected that much. But you're right. Even if it's small, even if it's tertiary, even if it's even if you don't realize it, I mean, that affected the way I was raised. And I, I wasn't even really born into its orbit. But you're right. I mean, that grim inheritance is something yeah. that, you know, you're right. It just continues. Let me tell you, let me say it one last way. Um Think about it like architecture or rooms. You know, you've heard the concept of feng shui, where everything's laid out perfectly to make you feel spiritually at peace. And if things are not laid out in the right way, then you feel spiritually askew. And like, um, you know, you could say, oh, you don't put a mirror there because you look in the mirror there right before you go to bed. It gives you a weird feeling. If you put the mirror over there by the plant, it reflects the plant and then green and feeling of spirituality. And, all. you know, like there's there's reasons for all this stuff. And I mentioned I say, hey, man, maybe now you're carrying a gun on your ankle or a, or a knife on the back of your belt. Well, the gesture of uh, sitting back in your chair when you got a little blade attached to the back of your belt, 
the gesture in a sheath or something, the gesture of sitting back now is changed. Now you have to shift one quarter of an inch so that the, 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 the sheath on the back of your belt isn't um, digging into the, into the lower spine. And your feng shui of your body is a little off. And the feng shui of like carrying a gun, you know, now you can't just get into your car. Now, now maybe it's on your hip and you gotta move the gunnels a little bit because you're squeezing around on your hip bone. Or like, so like my, what I'm saying is that like, in the littlest of things, there is like either spiritual peace or, 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 or a spiritual breakdown, you know, things are askew. And in the littlest things, you live your life. That's how your life is, 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 is acted out in the little gestures every single day. And even if that case for, for somebody who like, like your father says, maybe it didn't affect him that much, even he was slightly changed spiritually by it. And the people who it really affected are greatly changed spiritually by it. And you have to say to yourself, you have to remember that there are millions of people in the Detroit area and for generations. And so when we talk about the percentage of people who are changed, were altered by this, this, this darkest of cases, I mean, we're talking about millions. We're not talking about just the families, although they, of course, were affected the greatest. But we're talking about generations of people in a very populated area. And that's a lot of people, you know? Right. So it, it, this is a very, very, very important case. Um, that, that has messed with many, 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 many people over the course of 40-something years in the Detroit area and beyond. And, and um, you know, the police at the time knew it, man. They put, there was more money put into this investigation than any other murder case investigation at, at any time previously in the United States, his, in the history of the U.S. The amount of money put into that case in the, in the two immediate years uh, of the investigation was greater than any money put into any case previously in the history right. of the United States. They, this, this was an important case. This, this case was, was gruesome and was known to be uh, sort of monumental in, in the American psyche. And, and that doesn't go away just because they, they say, oh, we can't find a guy. Or oh, we did find a guy, or whatever the, whatever they come up with, that doesn't go away, man. The the grim inheritance that you you asked me about, um, that's what it is, brother. There's a spiritual darkness that that lingers, um, generation after generation. This case still matters here in the modern day, just as much as it did back in the '70s. It matters for a community who's wanted to put this killer to justice for years and years. But is it too late? Is the killer absconded forever? Is this case truly cold? Or is there something that might just blow this entire case wide open? I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County. And we've got something that might just break this entire case wide open. I could highlight a thousand things in the, in the many thousands of pages of documents that, and, and say, uh, look, this points to this guy, this points to this guy, this points to this guy, this points to this guy. And you know what happens when you do that? Nobody, nobody refutes you. Like, like, I wrote, you know. No, you really can't do it. You can't. It's all there, man. I mean, you're telling me the guy says when questioned, God has forgiven me, and this isn't your dude? Early, very early on in the case, they knew very early on that it was almost certainly not a gremlin. <laughs> and they, and they pursued... They wow. pursued it anyway. 
The Forever Children of Oakland County is a podcast recorded, written, produced, and researched by me, Eddie White, out of a burning desire for me to help see these cases solved. This podcast was not free to make, and you can support the show if you would like by going to anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Eddie dash white four slash support. That's anchor dot F-M slash Eddie, E-D-D-I-E dash white four slash support.